Well, the cruise ship is, I don't know, a couple kilometers away. It's pretty big. You can see it coming. Uh, Just appeared off, off the shores of St. Helena Wednesday morning, October 22nd. That sounds right. 23rd. 23rd. Yeah, but after, you know, it's being kind of completely isolated, one of the few tourists here since Saturday, uh, there's about to be almost 800 of them coming on, which should be interesting. These tourists have had a week-long journey from Cape Verde, basically, so I'm sure they're eager to get off. They're apparently on the around-the-world cruise, so I'm sure there'll be plenty of um, kind of wealthy tourists, which is exactly the type that St. Helena wants. Seems like the uh, the taxis here are, well, there's, there's a big increase in taxi numbers on a cruise ship day. None of the taxis are metered here. They kind of just have generally accepted prices. Um, so there are a lot of cars that uh, look pretty personal that, uh, uh, that suddenly have uh, taxi signs on top. All right, the cruise ship has slowed significantly. It's probably about, I'm gonna say, a quarter mile, quarter to a half mile offshore right now. I'm assuming it's about to drop anchor because it's, it's nearly at a dead stop pretty much as close as it can probably get. Um, and then once it drops anchor, we should see some boats go out to meet it. So the boat has dropped anchor now. They've lowered a boat. Um, they've lowered one of their boats and it definitely looks different than the lifeboats they have. So I'm, I'm assuming that that's kind of their, uh, the, the boat they use to ferry passengers um, that they bring with, with them. Because um, they do land on, this, this ship is sort of um, making a journey where it does land at some non-traditional cruise ports like this that are not gonna have many facilities. Um, so it's, it's just gotten to the water now, that, that smaller uh, shuttle boat. Um, so I don't know how soon they'll, they'll start shuttling passengers, but um, it's, it's getting real that we're about to have 800, uh, 800 tourists uh, in St. Helena. Status update. One of the two tenders is getting filled up right now. It might actually be full. That'll be the first run to shore most lucky tourist first to arrive on St. Helena. It's uh, hard to tell, it's kind of far away, but it, yeah, it, 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 is, it does appear that they're loading from, this, uh, from these stairs. So the tender has nearly made it to shore. It's maybe 300 feet or 100 meters off. Just took about four or five minutes. Then the passengers will have to clear border security and then they'll be presumably free to roam around. All right, the tender is docking. It's backing in on the far end of sort of the port. We'll see if it makes it successfully. All right, there's a proper procession of tourists now coming down the sort of coast and a good, uh, good probably 50 vehicles down here. It's, it's really buzzing. There's a taxi stand. St. Helena tourism is uh, out in force. The reason there's that buzz, and there are all those taxis and the miniature army from St. Helena Tourism, is that these days, the few days a year when a cruise ship graces St. Helena shores, are some of the most important days economically in St. Helena's year. Therefore, we're going to bring you one day on St. Helena. The day of the visit of the MV Boudica. Welcome back to Extremities. This is episode 5 of 6 in our season about St. Helena. 
If you haven't listened to the earlier episodes yet, you should definitely do that now as they provide important context. We'll get back to St. Helena in just a minute, but first, I need to thank the sponsor that makes Extremities possible. If you've listened to the other episodes of this season, you've surely heard me talk about CuriosityStream, the documentary streaming service that features thousands of incredible nonfiction films on topics ranging from history to science to the future of the internet. So this time, instead of trying to convince you that CuriosityStream is great, which it is, I want to convince you that something else is great, free trials. I mean, come on, they're free. They let you try something out with no risk at all, and if you don't like it, you don't have to pay for it, and CuriosityStream offers a full 31-day free trial. It's like a sample of ice cream, but instead of getting a tiny little spoonful of ice cream, you can eat as much of it as you want for 31 days. So why not just sign up for CuriosityStream's free trial at curiositystream.com ext. There's literally no downside, and there's a massive upside. You'll get access to a bunch of incredible documentaries, and when you use the link curiositystream.com slash ext, you'll let them know that we sent you, which really helps to support the podcast, which we'll get back to right now. The MV Boudicca carries 881 passengers. Jamestown, where the ship made port, has a population of 629 residents. While we don't know just how many of those 881 Boudicca passengers came off the ship and onto St. Helena, it feels reasonable to assume that with their arrival, the population of Jamestown nearly doubled. All of a sudden, with all these new bodies, we began to experience something that we hadn't experienced since our arrival. We felt a bit crowded. Instead of feeling quaint, Jamestown started to feel a bit touristy, and as that happened, we began to understand some of the saints' concerns about over-tourism. That paradox that the more tourists who come, the less desirable the place becomes to tourists, not to mention, the less like home it feels to locals. With the cruise ship passengers, frankly, it felt a bit less cool. It started to feel less like the extraordinary, exotic, unique location we traveled 10,000 miles to see, and more like just another place. It wasn't that we necessarily minded that the streets had a lot more people on them, it's more that the people clearly weren't the friendly, vibrant saints that we'd quickly come to love. They were the type of people who could afford to, and have the time to, go on a round-the-world luxury cruise, mostly old, rich, retired Europeans. Nonetheless, we took it upon ourselves to talk to some of these visitors and get their thoughts on the island. That's how we met Sibylla and Stuart Lang. So I'm Sibella. I'm Stuart, Stuart Lang. We didn't know it at the time, but Stuart and Sibylla are sort of big deals. When we googled their names after this interview, we came across Stuart's Wikipedia page, which informed us that he served as the British ambassador to Oman and Kuwait, and is now the master of Corpus Christi College at Cambridge. His wife Sibylla is a trustee of Ridley Hall at Cambridge. We're um, both um, guest speakers, as they call it, on the Boudicca, the Fred Olsen ship that's in port currently. So we're on a cruise, which uh, I think comes in fairly regularly to St. Helena. We're on our way from Tenerife to Cape Town. One interesting aspect of the Langs visit is that even though they were thousands of miles from their home at Cambridge, they were still on British soil. And according to them, even all the way out in the South Atlantic, it still felt a bit like home. Yes, I think it does feel quite familiar, and that's nice, driving on the left, you know, and uh, sterling currency and these lovely, friendly people who all seem quite happy to be, uh, you know, British dependency. But of um, course, the people are ethnically very diverse. Yes. Which is very, very obvious. Yeah, and very interesting too. Part of the problem with cruise ship tourism is that the passengers are relatively low-value guests. 
They only stay for a day, and they don't pay for lodging, and so part of the benefit of bringing these people to the island is to get word out about St. Helena as a tourist destination. For Stuart and Sibylla, it seemed to have worked. Well, we've been very impressed. Uh, of course, it's our first, first visit here. Um, we enjoy the different bits of scenery. You know, here you have the very clear volcanic rock, very bare, uh, nothing growing on it. And then inland, we've, been, we've done a tour inland. Uh, by bus and seen lots of seen forestry and woodland cattle grazing on the on the fields and of course this lovely lush place of the garden of Napoleon's tomb. Sibylla and Stuart are exactly the kind of tourists St. Helena hopes to attract. Relatively wealthy, worldly Brits with an appreciation for history and unusual places. When it got to the question of if they consider coming on a proper vacation here though, they were a bit less enthusiastic. Well, I don't know. I mean, I was just saying to Stuart, I'd love to have a holiday here. I think it would be a lovely place for a holiday, but I guess it's pretty expensive to get here. So, I think it'd be, yeah, for that reason, I think it'd be unlikely if we came on holiday here. But I can see that if you're nearby, if you're in Angola or Namibia or South Africa, it would be quite an attractive place to come. Yeah. We met Sibylla and Stuart at the top of Jacob's Ladder, one of the more unusual tourist attractions on the island. To explain, here's us about 30 minutes before that interview. So Jacob's Ladder was originally this inclined plane that carts would go up and down to take goods from up there, which is called Ladder Hill, to down here, which is Jamestown. It was used for quite a while until eventually the, the rails for the carts were taken off, but the steps that had been built as part of it, the steps remained. And so there were originally 700 steps, then one was removed, giving us the current number of 699. It was really common, especially for kids, to go up and down the ladder because the primary school was on Ladder Hill, at the top of the hill, and a lot of the kids lived in Jamestown. So kids would race up and down uh, Jacob's Ladder. More recently, people started racing Jacob's Ladder, and the current best time is from a man named Graham Doig, I'm assuming that's how it's pronounced, from Scotland, set in 2013, and it's 5 minutes and 16.78 seconds. The reason I know it that exactly is that we're standing at the bottom of Jacob's Ladder right now, and there's a plaque commemorating his time. Great, and now we're going to go beat that. Let's go! Now, I know because this is an audio medium, a lot of you don't know what me and the Extremities team look like. So you would have no way of knowing that despite our being professional podcasters, we're also elite athletes in peak physical condition. Don't believe me? Just listen to us shatter the Jacob's Ladder record. Okay, that's 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 33, 1, 32, 33, 16, 10, 11, 12, uh, 35, 36, 37, 38, 40. Uh, I miscounted. This is exhausting. It's so many more steps right, than I mean, it's all audio. They won't know. Yeah, we made it. We did it in 30 seconds. Right? right? 690, 691, 692, 93, 694, 695, 696, 697, 698, 699. And I'm here. Whew. Jeez. Yeah. What do you think of the view, Adam, from all the way at the top of Jacob's Ladder? I mean, it's nice. I don't know if it was worth 699 steps. Yeah, there's 699 steps in that, you know, four minutes and um, 52 seconds. I mean, I think that was worth it. Yeah. And there you have it. Audio proof that Extremities is brought to you by three of the finest athletes in the world. 
Alright, alright, maybe we didn't run all the way up the ladder, but I promise we really did walk to the top. To prove it, here's Stuart Lang confirming where we talked to him. So, where are we standing right now? We're standing here at the top of Jacob's Ladder, just above Jamestown. So unless you think that we got an esteemed British diplomat and academic to lie on our behalf, that proves we really did make it to the top. If you don't believe him, take it up with Cambridge University. For visitors who don't like to spend their leisure time walking up a 699-step staircase, a more relaxing option might be the St. Helena Museum, a small two-story building dedicated to preserving St. Helena's history and heritage. That's where we ran into Tony Ross. My name is Tony Ross. Tony opened our eyes to a completely different side of St. Helena tourism that we hadn't talked about yet, homecomings. When we first learned about the airport, we had thought of it as enabling St. Helena to connect to the world, allowing people from all over to come and visit this remarkable place. And while it does that, what we hadn't realized is that it also enabled a more familiar type of visitors. Saints. Saints, who hadn't previously had the time or resources to travel 10 days round trip, could finally visit their home. For some, they hadn't seen their island in years. For Tony, it had been decades. Uh, I was born here in 1950 and moved to the UK in 1959. So uh, it's nearly 60 years. I'm back here just for a week just to revive memories, my childhood memories of the island. We first met Tony and his wife on our flight in from Johannesburg. We exchanged pleasantries and throughout the week we occasionally saw them in passing, but we hadn't talked to them much until our producer Adam ran into them in the St. Helena Museum. He was doing some research for what would ultimately become our history episode, episode two, if you haven't listened, when he overheard Tony standing at one of the exhibits, having discovered something totally unexpected. Being the good producer that he was, he went and asked him what was going on. I'm just wandering around the museum and was really shocked and surprised to see a photo of my mother in a team, in a shooting team, I believe, they won a cup, and my father uh, who played cricket, who was a wicketkeeper for the island. I've seen a picture not only of one parent, my mother, but also my father in a team underneath. Uh, just incredible, just so surprised. Here in the museum, completely unexpectedly, Tony had found a picture of his mother and a separate picture of his father, coincidentally placed right next to each other in an exhibit about St. Helena sports. It's just complete surprise. I'm just wandering around the museum just trying to gather history about the island and uh, trying to find some information and just to stumble across a picture of my mother uh, who I think I have seen that picture before uh, I believe it's in, in an album at home in UK now which I call it my home now but I've been there for uh, 60 years and then um, the photo underneath seeing my father and I can remember brown cordry trousers he's wearing quite slim then but uh, he got uh, quite large uh, eating all the food in, in the UK. Yeah, so our whole family left in 1959 and uh, been in the UK ever since. So this is such a, such a memory blast for me, being back in St. Helena. And it's such, seeing the landscape, I lived in the town. So I remember Main Street and the wharf, the castle. Um, but we've been traveling around the town and seeing that the amazing volcanic landscape of the island. Just blown away, this has been a, holiday of a lifetime for us. These were pictures Tony had in his home, pictures he thought he might have the only copy of, but here they were, framed behind glass in a museum on the island he hadn't been to since he was a child. It reminded us of something that we often think about in making this podcast. History isn't something that happened, it's something that's happening all the time.
Just as his mother and father were a part of the island's history, Tony, in coming home after 60 years, was participating in a new chapter of St. Helena's history, an era of access and openness, and further, it drives home the individual human impact of larger economic decisions. Yes, the airport and the tourism push were designed to help bring money to the island, but they also allowed this incredible emotional moment where Tony was able to reconnect to his family and his heritage. After the museum, we had to rush to the governor's mansion to meet a very, very important individual. In fact, many would say he's the single most important resident on the island. No, not the governor, though we did talk to him too. I'm talking about Jonathan. Jonathan is a tortoise, but not just any tortoise. He's the world's oldest living land animal. Reports from 1882 recorded him as, quote, fully mature, which means that he was at least 50 at the time, and later, photographs found from that era proved it based on his size. That means that the youngest Jonathan could possibly be is 186 years old, putting him at over 64 years older than the oldest human of all time. Some estimates put Jonathan's hatch date as early as 1776, which would make him 243 years old, but nobody can be sure of Jonathan's age but Jonathan. So I figure, why not just ask him? After all, I'm standing in front of him right now. Jonathan, how old are you? Ah, a little bit of stage fright, I guess. Well, I'm standing right now outside of Plantation House, which is the house of the governor of St. Helena. But more importantly, it's been home to Jonathan the tortoise ever since he was brought to St. Helena over 130 years ago. Since then, Jonathan has become one of St. Helena's most famous residents, probably second only to Napoleon. So right now, Jonathan is kind of just hanging out and eating what he does for most of his days. He just got up and moved a bit, but you know, they can't walk that far because they're awfully heavy and Jonathan is awfully old. So he was originally thought to be an uh, Aldebaran tortoise, apparently. The word I'm struggling to say there is Aldebaran, a breed of giant tortoises from the Aldebaran Atoll in the Indian Ocean. But um, he's now thought to be what is called a Seychelles giant tortoise, which is a particularly rare breed that for a while was thought to be completely extinct. Jonathan lives alongside three other giant tortoises, all of whom are Aldebarians. Aldebarians? Aldebarians? Jonathan is now moving. To learn more about Jonathan, we spoke to Debbie. My name is Debbie and I'm the manager of Plantation House. In addition to running Plantation House, where the governor lives, Debbie also helps care for Jonathan, and she talked to us about what the daily schedule of the world's oldest land animal is. Spoiler alert, it's pretty relaxed. He just went around the whole of this paddock. As you can see, it's all fenced in. So tourists allow through this viewing corridor 24-7. So they can always just look over, but to actually come into the paddock, it's only on Tuesdays when I do a house tour, then I bring a small group in to see him. She also introduced us to Jonathan's much younger friends. See? They, were, they were just brought to uh, give Jonathan some, some friends. Emma, that little one is 50. David is 50. And Frederick, not sure if Frederick is hiding out, he's 47. See, so they are all young. So Frederick might be over that way, hiding out. Yeah. As you might expect, Jonathan has some health problems given his advanced age. His cataracts have made him completely blind. He's lost his sense of smell. However, he apparently retains excellent hearing. But if you're worried about Jonathan being cared for in his old age, let me assure you, 
he is well looked after. According to Philip Rushbrook, the governor, keeping Jonathan alive is one of his top priorities. When you get appointed to be the governor, the very first thing your colleagues say is, no matter how good a governor you were, don't let Jonathan die on your watch. So uh, Jonathan is very well looked after. If you've been listening to this season, you've already heard me talk about the documentary we made on St. Helena, the world's most useful airport, which is streaming now on Nebula. You've heard me talk about how it features exclusive interviews and archival footage and how we worked incredibly hard on it and blah blah blah. You might be thinking to yourself, is your documentary like the only thing on Nebula? I'm here to tell you that no. In fact, it is not. Nebula is full of all kind of other awesome originals from fellow YouTubers, including Better Elevation, a show where small independent video creators are given an intensive course on making internet content, featuring awesome guests and mentors like Bremer Morris, head of marketing at Patreon, or CTP Grey from, you know, CTP Grey. If you're interested in making internet content yourself, or you're just interested in how it gets made, you'll love Better Elevation. You can get access to that show, plus tons more, plus our documentary, plus all the incredible documentaries on CuriosityStream by signing up for an annual subscription to CuriosityStream at curiositystream.com ext. Make sure to use that link so you get Nebula included for free as part of your subscription. That's curiositystream.com ext. In addition to attractions like Jacob's Ladder, the museum, and Jonathan, St. Helena wouldn't be a viable tourist spot without a hotel. When we were looking for hotels for our trip, our priority was Wi-Fi. The internet on St. Helena is very slow and very expensive, and we wanted to stay somewhere that had a somewhat viable connection that we didn't have to pay extra for. There was only one place that did, the Mantis St. Helena. It was a bit pricey, but it seemed like the only place we'd be able to get work done, so we booked it. When we arrived, we were absolutely blown away. Most of the tiny remote locations I've visited in the past have pretty sparse accommodations, but this was a genuine luxury hotel. Beautiful rooms, great facilities, a fantastic restaurant. Our first reaction was delight. We were really excited to stay there. Our second reaction was confusion. Why did this place exist? Once we started learning more about the history of the Mantis St. Helena, things began to make more sense. The Mantis was heavily subsidized by the British government, who contributed about $3.3 million to its construction and operation costs. Now, at first glance, it might seem strange to use public money on a luxury hotel. It certainly seemed that way to the British tabloids, who levied heavy criticism on the British government, calling the subsidy, quote, astonishing, and representative of the, quote, bloated UK foreign aid budget. To be fair, $3.3 million is quite a lot of money. But as has been the case with much of the British tabloid criticism of St. Helena, there's a lot of important context behind that big eye-catching number. St. Helena's tourism industry is built on attracting a particular type of guest, mostly ones who are relatively wealthy and relatively worldly. Those guests expect a certain standard of accommodations. You just can't expect people to pay thousands of dollars to get to St. Helena so that they can stay in a rundown motel. Here's Chief Economist Nicole Shamir to explain. When um, the government was looking at the airport in fairly early on, um, it was the view of some consultants that um, St. Helena didn't have enough high-end or relatively, I suppose, international standard um, hotel rooms. So there was an options appraisal done to look at whether St. Helena government should uh, assist the sector after it was understood that, that no one on island could provide them, that themselves. 
and whether it would be taking over an existing uh, run hotel or whether it, whether it would be um, building its own one. One, two, three on Main was um, chosen as a place to um, upgrade. And so St. Lena government essentially funded uh, the works through programme to get that up and running. And Mantis were awarded the contract to, to manage that hotel. Mantis is an international hotel chain with 39 locations, mostly in South Africa, but also in England, Rwanda, Tanzania, and even Antarctica. They're experts in operating high-quality hotels in unusual and remote locations, which made them the perfect people to run a hotel on St. Helena. Despite the name, Mantis doesn't own the Mantis St. Helena. They just operate it. The hotel itself is owned by the government, though they're trying to change that. It's always been the medium-term or medium-to-long-term plan to um, sell that hotel, whether it be by a share basis um, over a, a number of, say, uh, months or years, or whether it be outright. So St. Helena government is um, and continues to look for someone who'd be willing to, to buy that hotel. So far, there haven't been any bites, which makes some sense. The hotel is quite expensive, and the tourism numbers aren't yet high enough for it to be profitable, which is why it's gotten so much flack from the British media. But if tourism numbers grow as expected, hotel occupancy will as well. In the meantime, the Mantis not only provides great accommodation to the tourists the island does have, it's also, somewhat unexpectedly, providing a service to the saints themselves. Food. The restaurant at the Mantis is genuinely great. I think we ate there for either lunch or dinner nearly every day we were on the island. Our first few meals, we were a bit confused. There weren't that many people staying at the hotel, and yet at mealtimes, the Mantis restaurant seemed to always be packed. It turned out that this restaurant, which had mostly been intended as a luxury for tourists, had actually become a hub for islanders. In terms of um, success and failures, I think it was underestimated how much that hotel would benefit local people in terms of providing a restaurant service. Um, the restaurant service has, has been going pretty well, actually. I think the hotel is now looking to understand more what services it can provide to local people as, as well as, you know, kind of people coming in internationally. It's no wonder why on cruise ship day, plenty of visitors wandered into the Mantis. Cruise ship day, however, goes by quick for nearly everyone on the island. It's a busy day for the visitors and locals alike, and so once the early evening rolls around, everyone's quite ready to get to their beds, whether they be floating a few hundred feet offshore or somewhere on the island of St. Helena. Once the cruise ship's retreat is done, Jamestown descends into an eerie quiet. These days give a small peek into a potential future for the territory. A future where it's thriving, busy, and the center of attention, but also a future where Jamestown doesn't have quite the same charm. People like how it is now, but people also know that the way it is now is untenable. Once the cruise ships are gone, St. Helena reverts to its normal state. Empty, quiet, isolated, and alone. Extremities is written and produced by Adam Chase and myself, Sam Denby, edited by Eric Schneider, and this is a Wendover Productions podcast. We'll be back next week for our final episode of the season, where we'll wrap up St. Helena's story so far and talk about where it's going in the future.